welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. The science of climate change has evolved tremendously over the past decade. Last year, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change declared that it is unequivocal that human influence is warming the planet. Recent advances in modeling and statistical analysis have enabled scientists to draw the complex connections between human activities and changes to our climate system. These tools help us answer questions like, how much planetary warming is caused by different economic sectors? And how does climate change affect the likelihood of extreme weather events? At the same time, as US climate policy lags in the legislative and executive branches, people are increasingly turning to the courts for relief. Judges are being called upon to resolve a wide range of challenges, from questions of how the government uses public resources or regulates private action, to liability for impacts and violations of constitutional rights. Here at ELI, the Climate Judiciary Project was launched to bridge this gap between the climate science community and the judiciary. The goal of the project is to provide judges with neutral, objective information about the science of climate change. Joining me today to talk about the project are Sandy Chong, Eli's Director of Judicial Education, and Dr. Paul Hanley, the project founder. Prior to his involvement with the Climate Judiciary Project, Paul was president and CEO of Climate Central. So we'll start with just an overview of the project. Um, The judiciary is an interesting focus for climate science education. Paul, can you tell us about the project and how it got started? Yeah, happy to do it. It was uh, really a confluence of two things that you've alluded to in passing, but I just want to uh, explain a little more. One was that the science of climate change really has accelerated extraordinarily in the last decade. Uh, If you go back to the early reports of the IPCC, um, 2007, for example, there were some uh, statements to the effect that uh, uh, the earth might be warming because of greenhouse gases, emphasis on might be. Uh, and since then, uh, the, the most recent report uh, that came out in 2021 says it's unequivocal that humans are causing uh, the warming. Uh, so this, this uh, is the foundational idea, at, but much more than that, climate science has developed all sorts of uh, ways of attributing uh, events and trends and Uh, phenomena to the presence of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So that's one thing. The other is that uh, at the same time, there uh, was a growing uh, wave, some people say a tsunami of cases that were being brought in courts uh, on a whole variety of uh, legal theories or bases for um, uh, government regulation, for uh, tort, their uh, tort uh, litigation for uh, also um, uh, trust cases and constitutional legal cases. And all of these um, seemed uh, at some point to be dependent upon making the, the, uh, the case uh, that uh, the science has become uh, very substantial and unequivocal. Uh, that these effects were happening because of greenhouse gas emissions. So uh, the cases were growing, the science was growing, and what we realized, and I realized actually at Climate Central when I was um, about to retire there in 2018, 
that there was a, an extraordinary need for uh, judges who are generally, usually, I should say, not educated uh, in, in science um, uh, to have some basis for uh, being able to make informed decisions. And so to educate them about basic climate science and impacts was the idea that we had at that time. So with, with that background, my um, partner at the time and I approached ELI and we together, ELI and the group decided that we would launch uh, what we now call is the Climate Judiciary Project. And there were still questions about to what extent the uh, judges, the judiciary broadly, uh, would be receptive to this kind of education, uh, to what extent it felt it was needed, uh, and uh, whether or not we could develop a, a, an effective program. And so we decided that we would uh, start with a, a pilot program uh, that we eventually uh, took to five locations around the country uh, where we did um, experimental uh, seminars educating uh, judges by bringing the uh, leading climate scientists uh, in those cities, the five cities where we went, uh, to speak to the judges and paired them with legal scholars uh, who would comment on the state of uh, climate law. And from this, we determined that, in fact, the judges really did uh, feel that this was an important program. Thanks for that background and overview of the project. Sandy, what are some highlights from the work you're doing right now? Thanks, Heather. The project has gotten really exciting. I have to admit, I, I seem to say that um, increasingly as the years go on building from the pilots that Paul mentioned. Right now, uh, we're engaged really deeply with um, judges in a number of different ways. Um, one particularly interesting one is a program called the Judicial Leaders in Climate Science we're working with the National Judicial College and a cohort of judges specifically selected by their chief justices from 21 different states across the country, as well as Puerto Rico, to engage in a year-long program with us on climate science and leadership. We spent a week together for the first um, in-person session in March, and it was just fantastic to be with this group of serious, focused, um, judges from all different political backgrounds, um, from states, the, you know, the whole spectrum of different states who are serious about these issues and understand the importance um, of being prepared to take on the cases that they know are coming. So it was very inspiring. The other um, really exciting thing happening right now is uh, we're also invited, in addition to these sort of selected programs, we're also invited um, to a number of regularly scheduled events where we reach a whole cohort, a whole jurisdiction of judges. Um, in a couple of weeks, I'll be headed to Lenox, Massachusetts for uh, a, a program educating judges in neutral and objective ways about, about climate science and the cases um, that, are, that are coming down the pike. Um, for the Mass Massachusetts district courts. Um, and then in the summer, we'll be doing a similar program uh, for the whole Ninth Circuit at their annual retreat. It's great to hear how wide reaching this project is. That's really encouraging. Um, so as you mentioned, this project focuses on the science that arises in climate cases. 
what are some of the ways that science may come to bear on legal questions in these cases? I think there are a couple of things to note. One is that the project is developing a curriculum, a written curriculum of 16 modules covering various topics in climate science and how that science comes to bear in, in legal cases. Uh, and we've engaged the nation's leaders in uh, uh, legal scholarship uh, about this. Um, uh, and we're very pleased that uh, the, the legal community has uh, been very supportive of this, as has the climate science community. I'll come back to that. Uh, but um, so from this curriculum, it's, um, we've been able to survey uh, a variety of ways that science comes to bear on cases. And I'll just note the, the first uh, and most uh, prominent um, uh, way that one could imagine is uh, through the science of at detection and attribution, but attribution of uh, climate and events uh, that come because of greenhouse gases. Uh, and maybe the paradigm case for this uh, is sea level rise because the sea levels are, are rising um, uh, in in a very direct fashion because of the heating of the earth system. Uh, and the causality of that, that the, the earth is, is warming, that greenhouse gases are the cause of it. Uh, and therefore that uh, with the warming, uh, the seas are rising uh, is uh, indisputable. And so uh, there's a very strong case for being able to say that uh, science is causing higher seas. Well, how this comes to bear, one famous case is a, a, um, a storm that came through the Northeast 10 years ago now uh, called Hurricane Sandy that had so, did so much damage uh, around the New York area, Connecticut, New Jersey. Uh, and um, one of our colleagues has done an analysis to show that the sea level rise, the addition of uh, damages that were um, incurred because the seas were approximately eight to 10 inches higher than they had been without greenhouse gas emissions, um, uh, was responsible for damages, extra damages uh, in the billions of dollars. In fact, published uh, in a peer-reviewed journal a year ago, uh, the calculation came out $8 billion of additional um, uh, damages because of the presence of greenhouse gases. Uh, and one can imagine this being uh, the kind of analysis that will be used going forward in saying, uh, in holding uh, those who are responses, deemed responsible for um, the greenhouse gases, uh, that uh, they are therefore responsible for the damages as well. And this might, uh, might be carried forward in court of law. Um, I'll also say that uh, the question about even standing uh, in cases um, is a very important one that uh, stands maybe most prominently in the landmark case of Massachusetts versus EPA, where the Supreme Court actually determined that the three tests for standing, 
injury, causation, and remedy, uh, all uh, had a basis uh, in the climate science that had been studied for decades before and was reported in the IPCC reports and the National Climate Assessment, uh, and indeed that there was a lot of uh, credence given to uh, the testimony of the, the former director of the um, U.S. Uh, Global Change uh, Research Program, whose name is Mike McCracken, a uh, colleague of ours and science, uh, climate, distinguished climate scientist, uh, to, to say, uh, to qualify that um, Massachusetts would indeed have uh, standing. So science played a significant role there too. Not the exclusive one, but a significant one. Um, but also note that government obligations to assess greenhouse gas emissions under the various um, environmental laws, uh, maybe most notably the National Environmental Policy Act, um, where emissions have to be uh, considered, greenhouse gas emissions have to be uh, assessed. Uh, and that was established uh, since 2008 and has become um, in, enshrined in the law and continues to be a basis for um, for uh, using climate science. So, so what it, just these are a few examples. There are many, many more. Uh, climate science is a, a key factor uh, in making um, uh, the case uh, and where judges have to be able to assess whether that climate science is reliable. Paul, thanks for that. Yeah, the science is definitely important. So Sandy, you mentioned you've been working with judges kind of all over the country. What kind of responses have you been getting from the judiciary? I have to say, it's been an extraordinarily positive response across the board. As Paul mentioned, when the project was just getting launched, um, Paul and others at the time had identified a clear need. It was clear there was going to be more and more litigation related to climate change and climate science. Um, and it was also clear that judges are lawyers who, by definition, um, largely have no science background. Um, so the, the need was clear, but how it was going to fit in with the priorities of judges, um, how much they would have time and interest uh, in this kind of course, we really didn't know. So we ran the pilot, as Paul mentioned, to identify the needs. Um, we consulted the, the groups at the end of each session. Um, trying to assess um, what they were interested in, what would be useful for them, and, and particularly how to target our messaging in a way that would be most effective for them. Um, and each time we got a very strong response that what they wanted was, was more. They wanted more in-depth explanations. They wanted more time with the scientists. They wanted a better understanding of the different uh, types of cases and the different kinds of science that are arising in the cases. Uh, and they wanted help in, in how to qualify evidence in these cases. So we've, we've been continually thrilled by the positive response and interest we've gotten from the judiciary. That's great to hear. So looking forwards, what kind of climate litigation can judges expect to see more of? As climate impacts increase, there will only be more litigation related to responsibility for the harm from those impacts, related to various kinds of government decisions, related to permitting and development that will be affected by those impacts. And as states and lo local governments are stepping up to respond to the climate challenge, 
in different cases and different examples, federal and private interests are challenging those measures in a number of different ways. All of these different um, issues and questions are coming before judges and will only continue to occur. At the federal level, efforts to regulate greenhouse gases will continue depending on the outcome of West Virginia versus EPA, which is before the Supreme Court right now. But certainly there will be a continuing effort at the federal level to regulate greenhouse gases in one way or another. And of course, that will go between the courts. Climate change affects every sector of society um, and many, many different industries, and it affects human rights, and it affects justice issues. And all of these are, are matters that come before courts in the United States. And, uh, and there will simply be more and more cases related to these issues. So we're nearing the end of our conversation. And again, thanks thanks so much for taking the time to join us. But are there any parting thoughts you want to leave us with? Paul, if you want to start us off. Yeah, and I want to defer to Sandy on this, but I'll just note that uh, having worked closely with the climate science community for almost a decade before starting this project, uh, and now working with them, uh, I see uh, very closely, I see uh, just a, an amazing commitment uh, at the, from the very top all the way down in climate, among climate scientists uh, to wanting to serve this uh, effort to reach this very important audience of judges um, because they recognize that uh, this is a place where uh, their work makes a difference. Uh, and they also have a genuine public service um, motivation uh, to contribute. So our, from the beginning, we've said this project is an effort to bridge the scientific community and the judiciary. And what I'm delighted to say is it, it's a bridge that's being built in both, uh, from both directions. Uh, not only have the judges, as Sandy said, uh, embraced this and said that it's really exciting, but also the climate science community has uh, and continues to uh, want to, to help uh, to educate the judiciary. And I would want to elaborate a little bit more on, on the um, reception of this project by the judges. Um, as Paul said, we, they, they have shown a great interest, but I've just found engaging with them is extremely inspiring um, in a time when, when the, things are not always as heartening as we would like we found that engaging with a whole range of federal and state judges, um, both those who chose to participate in our programs and others who just happened to be at events where we were presenting, um, we've seen that, that judges by and large, or all the judges we've engaged with, um, take their responsibility as judges seriously. And they are committed um, to being prepared for new so social challenges that may result in litigation. And they see that climate is one of those issues. And, therefore have asked for support on climate science. Um, and we're honored to be providing this information and helping them with resources and tools to be able to do their job in this changing context. Thank you both so much for those insights. It was great to speak with both of you today. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, 
attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.